Kevin Pelton from ESPN coming up in just a bit to talk some NBA offseason. Lots to get into there. But right now we've got Rob Volman, who is an ESPN hockey insider. And Rob, I want to start off with something that, that Bill and I were discussing before the break. In, in terms of the way we operate now in a cap world, is there not more value to, to if you're not a good team, to keeping your prospects down longer just in terms of economics, in terms of you know entry-level contracts and, and value there? Like, where do you think that's going? There are a lot of advantages to players that are young on entry-level contracts. Like, their, their salary is capped, and uh, even with bonuses, you know, their cap hit is, is really small compared to their potential value. And then even once they become restricted free agents, you know, other teams can't just grab those players without giving you a bunch of picks in exchange. So there's real value in carefully managing um, those entry-level contracts and making sure that the players are only entering the NHL when they can provide that value to maximize hmm. the value of that. Uh, but that being said, you know, players are eager to play in the NHL. And if you're keeping them off the team just to maximize the contractual value of your team, you know, I don't think they're going to want to play for you. I think that's going to hurt their, perhaps hurt their attitude a little bit. Well, so we saw kind of a flashpoint with that in, in Major League Baseball where they kept Chris Bryant down. I forget how many games, but it was a, a couple weeks, and then they brought him up for contractual reasons. I was arguing before the break that if I were the Leafs, I would keep William Nylander in the minors the whole year just based on a lot of factors, patience, economics, and everything like that. And part of my case was, like, I, I just don't see the value in, in bringing him onto a bad team if you don't have to. Do you agree with that sentiment, or do you just say if he's ready, he's ready? From a contractual standpoint, like from a roster management, I absolutely agree. However, when it comes to the actual coaches and the players, you know, it might be a different story. It might be very difficult to explain to a young player that he's good enough to contribute to the team, and he's actually better than maybe some of the players that you're using, but you're not going to use him in order to save a buck or two in some future contract negotiation. I think that's a hard conversation to have. And, you know, for that reason, if Nealander is good enough to make the team, even if it makes more sense from a cap management position to keep him off the team, it's going to be hard to tell a young man that he can't be on the team. We're talking with Rob Volman from ESPN Hockey Insider, also uh, author or one of the main authors, I guess, with the Hockey Abstract. And I know you've been working real hard to get that out. It just came out this weekend. Uh, and I, kudos to you, by the way, because it's, pretty up-to-date in terms of personnel and so on. So I'm thinking I'm getting you out of a basement for the first time in weeks. So uh, with that in mind, let, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about what uh, some of the things you said about uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs and things they have to work on. A lot of people around here, Rob, are of the impression that with the new coaching staff, with Mike Babcock and company, that uh, there will be a better defensive team. One of the things they have to be better at is uh, power play uh, and penalty kill. Uh, power play you don't have Phil Kessel so that might be a little more difficult but with the penalty kill they allowed the third most shots on goal the other two were Buffalo and Arizona which doesn't come as a surprise to anybody how much better do you think they can get considering their personnel isn't all that different from what they had last year well that's a good question and you're alluding a little bit to the um the hockey abstract checklist that I have in this this update that just came out, mm -hmm. where I don't measure penalty kills based on the penalty killing percentage, because you know you're, we're only talking about 30, 40, 50 goals. You know, a, a few bad breaks here and there, 
uh, skew cold goalies here and there can really skew your penalty killing percentage, which is why it is better to look at the number of shots that are being allowed right. or attempted shots or scoring chances or just something that's a bit more numerous. And in that regard, you're right. I mean, Toronto's really been down in the basement and they've got to find a way to improve that. And in my mind, it's really built around that blue line because at even strength, your defensemen are only two of the five players. But when you're killing penalties, they're half the players out there, and they're really the key players when it comes to preventing shots. And that's really an area in general that the Toronto Maple Leafs need to build on is improving that blue line defensively. And the penalty kill, I think, is just magnifying that issue. Well, and one of the things we, we, we talk about, Rob, when we look at the Leafs is obviously the coaching staff. And one of the things that you've written about that just fascinates me, two things actually, and I'll get to the second one in a sec, coaches and the value of coaches how much of an effect can, let's use Mike Babcock as an example, how much of an effect can a coach have on a, on a team in terms of results at the end of the year? Like, wh- how should we quantify that? Well, there's no consensus in the statistical community on uh, just how much impact a coach has. But I'll give you the results of my own analysis. I actually did invent a statistic in a previous version of Hockey Abstract that measures coaches. And, uh, you know, in that regard, you're talking about four or five points in the standings uh, for like a pretty decent coach. And when everything comes together, I mean, it can be up to 10 points in the standings. So it makes a lot of sense for a team like Toronto that has a lot of money uh, to invest in a, in a coaching staff because that doesn't fall within the salary cap. You can spend as much money as you want. And by the way, I say the entire coaching staff, not just Mike Babcock, because you know, some of those points in the standings aren't coming from the head coach. It could be coming from the special teams coach. It could be coming from the goaltending coach. You really have to look at the staff as a whole and not just the head coach himself. In fact, I believe the Jack Adams Award should be awarded to coaching staff, not just the head coach. <laughs> well, it's such a – I'll be honest. I think the, the way that Jack Adams is handed out is, is kind of ridiculous. It's almost like which coach surprises us the most. Yeah. He's the guy. <laughs> exactly. But, but so in terms of, like, philosophy with Mike Babcock, as opposed to – we'll use Randy Carlisle as the example because he was here. Uh, I would expect and I expect Mike Babcock coach teams to have the puck more and thus defend less. Is that a fair way to, to kind of sum up what – the expectations should at least start with? I think that's fair. And partly because you're not just looking at the Detroit Red Wings, who had a certain set of assets that's different than Toronto's. But in reaching that conclusion, you probably drew all the way back on like his experience in Anaheim and, and looking for sort of the common threads there. And you're absolutely right. Babcock's coach teams generally focus on puck possession more so than uh, you know his predecessors and or successors have. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing because uh, one of the, the 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 pieces you wrote about this particular team, and I, I can't say I argue with you on this, is that they need, and I quote, a top four defenseman or three. Uh, gets me back to the, gets me back to the draft, which I, I guess is a, a fair question. They get to that fourth pick, Mitch Marner, Noah Hannafin. They go with Marner. I'm guessing you thought they made the wrong decision. No, absolutely not. I'm in the camp that you pick the best player that's available. You don't know what your organization is going to need in uh, you know, 2020 when that player is starting to hit his stride. So you get the player that's the best player that's available. If there's any disappointment, it's that uh, perhaps, like, I don't know what's happening behind the scenes. Toronto may have been pursuing uh, defensemen quite aggressively and just failed to really come up with, uh, with a good deal that worked for the team and worked for the organization. Um, but it would have been nice for them to uh, identify one more 
a top four defenseman. The three was more a tongue in the cheek joke. Um, you know, adding guys like Matt, Huck, Matt Hunwick and Martin Marincin, I think those are really, really, really solid uh, value picks to round out the depth, and they really do deserve a thumbs up for that. But they needed a legitimate top four guy because Dion Phaneuf is just absolutely being buried out there and has been for years with an assignment that I think is way too heavy for him. Well, and I think that's going to be one of the interesting potential changes, and I'm not sure that there's much that Mike Babcock can do, but seeing how he uses different players, uh, how did, like how much can a coach work and, and change things to that effect just in terms of the way that players are used uh, on a day-to-day basis? Like we saw Jay McClement here overused and overused by Randy Carlisle just because it was a guy he trusted. I think uh, coaches can have a lot of impact in terms of player usage, uh, and not just in terms of sort of which zones they're using the players in or any line matching they're doing against opponents. But earlier in our in our call, you talked about uh, the penalty kill. Well, Babcock's a good example of that. In Detroit, rather than use Datsuk and Zetterberg, who are absolutely amazing on the penalty kill, rather than use his superstars on the penalty kill, mm-hmm. he actually used more his depth players, like Darren Hellman and so on, in order to save Datsuk and Zetterberg for even strength in the power play. So applying that same principle to the Toronto Maple Leafs, it's possible that you know, he might actually try to find more advantageous situations for Dion Phaneuf and let someone else carry a little bit more of the defensive burden. We're talking with the ESPN Hockey Insider and uh, I'm going to say author of the uh, Hockey Abstract, um, uh, Rob Volman. And Rob, I've read your book several times in the, in the past. I, I always love the updates because one of the things that I'm fascinated by is how much the analytics side of, of uh, those watching the games has grown and how we tend to look at things a whole lot uh, differently than we did as recently as five years ago because of the uh, research that's been done. Some of the things that we come up with are a bit of a surprise. Uh, and, and one of the things that I wanted to bring up was uh, you in the end this year, you, you came up with where you thought teams would finish, judging by what their rosters looked like. Now, you have the Leafs finishing ahead of Vancouver, Arizona, New Jersey, and Buffalo. The Vancouver, some people might question, but I don't. I think you're, you're probably right about that. But what's really interesting to me is you have Colorado, not a surprise, but Washington and Montreal pretty close. Explain those last two. Well, first of all, those aren't my picks. Those are, that's the outcome of sort of that lack neutral standings chapter. Right, it's a, right. It's a model I devised that was meant to suck all the sort of random variation out of the standings, like, uh, you know, uh, puck luck and injuries and, and close game records and shootout records and stuff like that. Suck as much of that luck out as possible. And the end results can sometimes be surprising. Like when I first did that a couple of years ago, it actually had Ottawa and New Jersey at the top of the standings. So... You know, it doesn't always yield results to make a lot of sense. I mean, you still need to, from there, think think about it a bit more. But you asked specifically about Montreal, Washington, and Colorado. Now, Washington, I actually expect a lot of people to embrace Washington as their dark horse pick. I think they're going to become one of the darlings, having picked up Ocean Williams. But when I look at that team, I mean, I... I sort of agree, I guess you can say, what the model was saying, that they're not really at that elite level um, that those other teams are at. And Montreal's always been a team that, for whatever reason, uh, the luck-neutral model uh, is really negative about. Uh, In the past, it's certainly been the case and and has been now. I think they've done a lot to address their depth issues. I think in the past they've had an issue with depth, and I think 
adding a few low-cost players like Alexander Semin and so on have addressed those issues. As for Colorado, they're a really hard team to put your finger on. Um, they got really, really lucky that one year. They perhaps had a bit of bad luck last year. The real Colorado was somewhere in the middle. Uh, I haven't agreed with their moves, whether it was last year, spending a lot of money on high-priced guys that are way past their prime, like Briera, Gindla, and Stewart. And they did it again this year with Boschman and, and Soderberg. So I don't agree with sort of some of the direction that they're going, but they've got such an incredible young core of forwards up front that it's hard to be completely pessimistic about their chances. Rob, I'll get one more in and then we got to go. We saw a different type of free agency this summer, uh, less crazy deals, more logical deals. But I wonder about goaltenders. Do you think we're eventually going to start seeing a change in the way that goaltenders are paid in terms of some of these long-term contracts? Yeah, I've actually got um, a book coming out next year uh, with ECW Press. So it's actually going to be on the shelves and not just you know, promoted word of mouth by great guys like you guys, but actually on the shelves. And in that, I'm taking a closer look at one of those questions. And my opinion is that goalies are crapshoots. Mm-hmm. They are the most important player on your team, and yet no one can really predict how well they're going to perform. And as a result, it's hard to justify spending big money on your goalie unless you happen to have one of the three guys or so that really are you know, elite and really, you really do know are fantastic, like uh, Price, Rask, and Lundqvist. Unless you've got your hands on one of those guys, it's pretty much a gamble, and you might be better off you know, investing a little bit less money in your goalies and then using those savings to put a better blue line in front of them. Rob Volman from the HockeyAbstract.com and ESPN, thank you so much for this. I wish we had more time. Yeah, and thanks for uh, helping promote the book a little bit. (laughs) I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I hope everyone else does too.